Hello friends, Tom here. I want to welcome you from wherever you're tuning in. We are in week two of our series entitled The End, where we are exploring what the Bible says about the last days. Um, if you have already listened to or watched uh, the first week's message, uh, wonderful. If you have not, take a moment, stop this video or stop this podcast and go listen or watch uh, to, to that message because everything that we're going to cover today is kind of built on the foundation that we laid last week. And I'd hate for you to kind of be like, what is he talking about? I want to honor your time. Go check out week one if you haven't checked it out already. Um, but for those of you who have, welcome. We're going to jump in here in just a bit. Um, now, just to remind you, uh, we've been talking about, you know, end times and what the scriptures have to say. And one of the things that we, we touched on last week was this idea that there really is a, quite a bit of disagreement in the church about these issues. And the disagreement doesn't, um, there's not disagreement over if these things are going to take place, if Christ is going to return, if there's going to be an end. No, the disagreement is all about when. It's all about the, the timeline and how things shake out. So this week, we're going to cover some of these different views. And each of these views are based on different interpretations of Scripture, okay? All of these views use the Bible with, as the means for which they come to the conclusions that they come to, okay? So I just want to be clear. None of these views that we're going to talk about today are heretical, okay? Every single one of these... Are, fall under the category of Orthodox Christianity, okay? That means there are brothers and sisters in Christ, people filled with God's Spirit, who love Jesus and want to devote their lives to following Him and studying His Word and examining it and honoring it and, in, and, and interacting with God as a beloved son or daughter who come to different conclusions, okay? This isn't heresy. It's differing opinions. They do not disagree on the if. They simply disagree on the when, Okay, so the goal for today, today's message is we want to answer two questions. Okay, the first question is this, what are these main biblical perspectives? What are these main biblical views of the end times? And the second question, uh, an important one, are we living in the end times today? So before we jump into the scriptures, I just want to pray for us. So wherever you're tuning in, if you would join me, let's pray. Um, Jesus, we love you. Our Holy Spirit, I just ask you to help me right now. Um, not to just kind of like deliver this content, but to actually like focus on you as I do it. Um, we have this incredible privilege of living our lives with you. Because of what you've done, Jesus, because of who you are, we get to interact with you um, in deep, close, intimate ways. You say you're not ashamed to call us friends. So I, I don't know. I just feel like this desire for myself and for the people tuning in um, that as we go through your scriptures today and we explore these differing views, um, that we would really kind of like do it with you <clears throat> um, as your friends, as, as your beloved ones that you purchased with your blood. So let that be in front of us. Use me, God, please. Help me not to say or do anything that gets in the way um, of what you want to do in the hearts and minds of people in revealing Jesus more and more to us, Holy Spirit. So we love you. We lean into you now. Help us. Help me. Bless us, God. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be in, in primarily in Revelation chapter 20 today. 
Now, before we actually jump into the scripture, it's important that you know just a little bit of background on the book of Revelation. Um, now, just to kind of be clear, it's not the book of Revelations. It's not plural. You'll have people say like, oh, you turn to Revelations chapter. It's, it's, the book is called the, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, okay? It's a revelation about Jesus. It's a revealing of Je- about Jesus. So this, this, this book this is all about Jesus. It all points to Jesus. It was written by, by the Apostle John, and he wrote it to a group of seven churches, real Christians, real people, living in Asia Minor, okay? He wrote this letter to these seven churches, okay? And many of these Christians, they were experiencing um, some rather intense persecution, okay? So this book, it, it deals a lot with the spiritual warfare that was kind of happening behind the scenes at the time, okay? So that being said, Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 1, we're going to go through quite a few verses. We're actually going to get into chapter 21 as well, but Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read, I'm going to read a bunch of stuff, so stay with me. It says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and closed it, and put a seal on it, so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. A lot of imagery here. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Keep that in your pocket. Reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Okay? If you're lost, it's okay. We're going to keep reading. Okay? Verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Is that thousand years again? Verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. 
Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the dead and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. If you're with me, good. That's Revelation chapter 20. Keep reading into Revelation chapter 21. <clears throat> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Okay, a lot of scripture there. A lot of images there. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of things happening there. <clears throat> what I want to do right now is for, for us to make sense of this, uh, I want to chat around um, the two kind of main approaches to reading the book of Revelation. Okay, uh, a man by the name of Michael Gorman, he's a scholar, he wrote a book called Reading Revelation Responsibly. And in it, he explains two approaches to reading Revelation. Okay, I want to break these down for you. The first approach for reading Revelation is reading Revelation as a secret code. Okay, so in this case, the goal would be to map specific textual details to precise historical events in the past, present, or future. Okay? Uh, Tim Mackey, uh, a guy that, if you're familiar with the Bible Project, Tim Mackey is kind of the, the brains behind the Bible Project. Amazing resource. If you have any questions about anything further, go, go want to dive deeper into anything in the Bible, we highly recommend the Bible Project, okay? But either way, Tim Mackey says this regarding this specific approach, reading Revelation as a, as a code, as a secret code. He says this, quote, with this approach, every generation has been waiting for the real message of the Revelation to be fulfilled. In a way, you could say the book's meaning hasn't fully happened yet until those events take place, okay? So that's the first approach to reading Revelation, is reading it as though it's a secret code and you're trying to decipher the codes, okay? And the implications of that is that the book's meaning hasn't really fully happened yet until the generation, or I'm sorry, until those, those, those events take place in the generation with which they're supposed to take place. Okay, so that's the first one. The second approach to reading Revelation is as a metaphorical lens. So when it says metaphorical lens, think like glasses. You look through, through lenses, right? It's, it's how you see things. It's how you see the world. The goal <clears throat> is that every generation is to see itself living in what the Revelation is describing where the symbols in Revelation fit into the wider biblical story of how they apply across each generation. Okay? Again, Tim Mackey with a quote for you. He says this, With this approach, this, this reading as metaphorical lens, these images of disaster 
refer to events that actually happen in the Bible, and then through design patterns, they are repeated over and over again. That's where each generation, these things are happening, each generation repeated over and over to tell the readers about the theological and biblical meaning of disasters that happened in our world and are going to be happening in our world all up until the end. So, in other words, when using the approach of reading Revelation as a metaphorical lens, Revelation describes events that happen in the Bible and are repeated throughout human history. Okay, and that these events will continue to happen until the renewal of all things, until Christ comes back and makes everything new. So it's, it would sort of be like a, uh, if you've seen the movie Groundhog's Day with Bill Murray, waking up to the same thing every day, right? It's sort of like a generational Groundhog's Day, right? Where, where every generation has its own unique replay of the human condition. So... How you interpret the scriptures depends on which approach you use when reading it. Reading it as a secret code or reading it as a metaphorical lens. Okay, now, <clears throat> I, I want to get into these now, these main views historically, okay? The main views that people come to, uh, that, that, that there's disagreement on, yes, but these main views... Uh, of, of, of not that if the end times are going to take place, not if Christ is coming, but the when, okay? The, the, the main views of the timelines, okay? Now, each of these different views, they, they deal with the timing of Christ's return. Now, essentially, what that means is where in the timeline do certain things take place, okay? If you were with us last week, you know, we talked about this idea of the Great Tribulation, and I broke down how there's different viewpoints that there's, that, that, that Jesus' return is going to come prior to the Great Tribulation, which would be a pre-trib vantage point, a pre-trib opinion, right? Or, or, or in the middle of the Tribulation, which would be mid-trib, or after the Tribulation, which would be post-trib, right? Similarly to the Great Tribulation and the three different vantage points on that, there are three major views when it comes to what's known as the Millennium, okay? We talked about the Millennium a little bit last week, but I'll give you a little bit of a refresher. The millennium, what it refers to is it refers to the 1,000-year reign of Christ that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. We read about it. It popped up a few times, but I'll read Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, just to kind of jock your memory here. It says this, Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, martyrs, right? Because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not, these people had not worshipped the beast or his image. These people had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ, it says, for a thousand years. That, that thousand years of Christ's reign, that's the millennium, okay? So what I want to do is I want to do a quick kind of overview of, these th of the three major views as it pertains to the millennium, okay? Now, I thought about um, pulling up like a, a graphic for you of the three different proposed timelines, and I thought, okay, they really need to see it visually because it's hard to make sense of, and then I, as I was preparing to do that, I realized very quickly that it would take a long time to be able to explain those to you visually, because they're complex, especially one of the views. Very complex. Um, not that you can't handle it, but for the sake of time, again, I encourage you, uh, reach out to us. We'll give you some resources in terms of if you want to do some more visual kind of looking at things. Um, but I'm not going to put up a visual thing for you. So, so follow with me here as I break down 
um, these three major views. Okay, and again, each of these have to do with when Jesus is going to physically return to earth. Okay, the first view, premillennialism. Okay, so you probably can already see where I'm going with this. This is that Christ will come before the millennium, okay? That he, he will physically return to earth before this thousand-year reign. So in other words, his physical return is what would usher in that thousand-year reign, okay? <clears throat> and pre-mill, pre, I'm going to call him pre-mill so I don't stumble over my words. The pre-mill view, it, it, they view it as the 1,000 years is a literal 1,000 years, Okay, it's not a symbol, it's not metaphorical, it is a literal 1,000 years, okay? The second view is what's called post-millennialism, post-mill, okay? And for the post-mill perspective, the 1,000 years, it's not necessarily literal, okay? It could be, or it could also be literal, or it could also be metaphorical, okay? So, and you'll see why in a second. And basically what they believe is that Christ will physically return to earth after the time of the millennium, okay? And what makes this this vantage point unique is this view sees kind of the progress of the gospel as what produces the millennium, okay? So in other words, Christ reigns, right? The thousand-year reign. Christ reigns through his church as the effects of the gospel increase on the earth, Okay, the influence of the church, the influence and the spread of the gospel that Christ reigns through his people on the earth and things actually improve over time. Okay, that's postmillennialism. And the third and final uh, view that we're going to go through today is what's known as amillennialism, an A, amillennialism, amillennialism. Okay, what you need to know about the amill perspective is it's, it's uh, somewhat of a version of, po- of postmillennialism. Okay, in that, um, it believes that that Christ's return would be after a millennium. Okay, and how they define millennium is what makes them different here. So, an all-mill perspective is a perspective when when it comes to the 1,000 years, it views that 1,000 years as metaphorical. So, so therefore, it's not literal. Okay, an all-mill perspective, they kind of present the case that if it was literal, Okay, that the, if the, if the millennium, the 1,000 years, that was literal, it was meant a 1,000 years, that it would be the only place in the Bible where 1,000 is used literally. So they'll cite things like, like Psalm 50, where it talks about how God owns the cattle on a 1,000 hills, that, that, that when, you, when, the, when the number 1,000 is used, it's not meant to be a literal 1,000, not 999, not 1,001. No, it's just a big number, right? And the same thing with Exodus 20. If you're familiar with Exodus 20, God, it basically is like God showing his faithfulness to a thousand generations. Okay, so the Amil perspective was, hey, the, the, the 1,000 years thing, it's, it's metaphorical, okay? We, we, if it wasn't, it would be the only time in scripture where 1,000 is used and it was literal, okay? Now, if you're following along with me, you might be asking the question, what makes the all-mill perspective different than the post-mill perspective? Here's where they're different, okay? The post-mill perspective, it really believes that the church's influence on society is going to increase until Christ's arrival. 
So that literally that, that, that society and, and government and, and business and all these different sectors are going to be almost like infiltrated with, with, with the church and infiltrated with the gospel in such a way that it improves more of God's kingdom on the earth, more of his rule and reign on the earth, hence the millennium thing through his church, right? They believe things are going to improve until Christ's return. The Amil perspective thinks the opposite. They believe that things are actually going to deteriorate that the church is going to experience more and more hardship, that it's going to become more and more irrelevant to society, and then Christ will return. So those, that's the big two differences there. Okay, as we're working through those, I just want to reiterate something, okay? Brilliant Bible scholars, men and women who devote their lives to interpreting the Scripture as faithfully as they possibly can, people who love Jesus and follow Him and worship Him, come to very different opinions on these passages, on how to interpret these passages, okay? So the reason for that is because interpreting end times passages is complex and it's challenging, okay? So it's important for us as Christians not to like not make a call and not to not have a perspective, but to operate and exercise humility when we talk about stuff like this. Okay? Now, like we said, these are three differing views, which means there's disagreement on the interpretation of Scripture. But even though there's disagreement, there are some amazing things here that each of these views agrees on. The first one is this, and it's beautiful. It's that Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back to renew all things. Okay, we read about it together in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 5, where it says, I'm making all things new. I'm making everything new. Revelation 21 talks about the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so if, if, you've, if you've had this cultural view of heaven, which is not Christian, where you're just kind of sitting on the clouds with a harp and wings, and you're kind of in this ethereal sky area, like that's not the heaven that the Bible describes. The heaven is is a new heaven and a new earth and being married together where God and man dwell together. There's no sin, there's no death, there's no evil, there's no brokenness. It's things the way that they were supposed to be. I can't think of anything better than that, okay? The first thing that every Christian agrees on, regardless of their end times view, is that Jesus is coming back and he's coming back to make all things new. Okay, the second thing is that all people will stand before God and give an account, okay? God sits on his throne as judge, and we stand before him to give an account for the choices that we make during this life, okay? And, it, and the scriptures say we will be judged by one thing, okay? And judged on one thing, I should say, and that is our relationship to Jesus Christ. That and that alone. The third thing, the third agreement is that Christians will suffer as they follow Jesus in a broken and a lost world. Okay, even the post-millennialist who believes that, that, that the church's influence is going to increase over time until Christ's return. As beautiful as that sounds, that sounds amazing actually, as beautiful as that sounds, there's still elements of, of, of the church being persecuted and suffering on that process. Okay, so with that increase, even with that view, oftentimes it happens in and through persecution even. Okay, so every, everybody believes that Christians will suffer as they follow Jesus in a broken and lost world. Okay, 
So, end times. The timeline. Where we land on the timeline. When is Christ's return? How are things going to shake down? Are we, big question, are we living in the end times today? Listen, answering that question, it boils down to what approach you take in reading Revelation and other end times passages. Remember we talked about the approach. Is it a secret code or is it a metaphorical lens? What approach do we take in reading Revelation? Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to make the case for using both of them, both the secret code and, and the metaphorical lens, okay? So 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Peter, I'm sure we're all familiar with who Peter is, he wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. He says this, Peter, 2,000 years ago, writes, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. So Peter seemed to think that he was living in the end. That the end times was the times that he was alive, the times that he was ministering. Okay, he said that they were near. Like they're close, they're, 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 they're near. And, it, and because he believed that, it actually affected how he led and how he influenced the early church. Herrick's going to talk more about 1 Peter chapter 4 next week. But listen, Peter wasn't the only one who thought this way in the New Testament. If you have your Bible, flip to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to read verses 1 through 5. This is Paul, the apostle. Again, another, another apostle, not Peter. This is Paul. And he's writing to kind of his, his son in the faith, Timothy. <clears throat> okay, Timothy's a pastor. He's a leader in the church. He's a younger man. But Paul is, is spiritually fathering Timothy. And he writes this letter to him. <clears throat> to encourage Timothy to follow Jesus and to, and to, and to give himself to the, to the advancement of God's kingdom through, 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 through planting of churches and leading the church and stuff. And this is what Paul writes to Timothy. He says this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1, he says, But know this, hard times will come in the last days. Verse 2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, <clears throat> excuse me, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanders, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. And listen, he tells, Peter, he tells Timothy, Avoid these people. Paul clearly thinks that he's in the last days as well. How do we know? Because you don't tell someone else to avoid certain people that won't be born for thousands of years. No, Paul tells Timothy, hey, this is, this is what it's going to People are going to do these kinds of things in the last days. And he lists all the things that they're going to do. And he says, avoid those people. Paul and Peter both thought they were living in the end times. Why? I would argue because they were. They were. And so has every generation since. Listen, the only way to make sense of this is to not limit the reading of Revelation as it's only a secret code. Okay, now listen to me. There are certainly codes. It's a really important way to approach reading Revelation. But limiting to that gets you into some trouble, okay? 
But reading Revelation as a lens as well, a metaphorical lens, it helps us see that each generation has similarly experienced the brokenness of the human condition. Each generation has similarly experienced the effects of evil and sin. And most importantly, it shows us that each generation desperately needs a savior. And thankfully, God in his kindness put on flesh in the person of Jesus to rescue a people who are contributing to that evil and sin on the regular generation after generation. You know the story. It's our gospel. It's our good news that Jesus came and lived in our place, the perfect life that we never could. And he willingly went to the cross to be the punishment for our sins and disobedience and evil and rebellion against God, not doing things God's way. And then he rose from the grave, proving his victory over sin, Satan, and death, and making a way for us to join him for eternity when he makes all things new. So listen, the question isn't, are we living in the end times? I think the real question is, are we the last generation on earth? And listen, Scripture says, no one knows. In Matthew 24, it talks about, we talked about this last week, it says, the angels and Jesus don't even know. Only the Father knows. But like we talked about last week as well, Christ's return could be at any moment. So, eschatology, what we're going through, these perspectives on the end times, okay, the last days, the study of the last things, that's what eschatology means. It's important. It's important because what you believe will determine where you put your focus, what you actually focus on. Will you focus on trying to figure out the timeline? Will you focus on all the different affairs of the nations and all the things happening in the news? Will you focus on when or if you will escape tribulation? Will you focus on who the Antichrist is? Or will you focus on the Savior, the glorious one, Jesus? Will you behold Jesus the one who promises to come back to make all things new, to restore the redemptive order into creation, to usher in his kingdom fully. So listen, friends, the goal for the Christian in all of this is, is faithfulness to Jesus as we anticipate his return. And we can join with generation after generation of, of, of Christians of the church that pray that prayer, come, Lord Jesus, come, make things right. Will you pray with me? Oh, Holy Spirit, these things feel like really lofty. A lot of it feels over my head, feels complex and challenging. But when I focus on you, Jesus, when my eyes are fixed on you, and your goodness and your grace to me, and your love on display at the cross, 
It fills me with joy. It fills me with gratitude. It fills me with anticipation to stand before you and see you, knowing that my sins are forgiven. They've been washed clean. I'm clean now because of what you've done for me on the cross and the perfect life that you lived in my place and credited to me. So God, I just pray for our church. I pray for anybody watching this, that our perspective wouldn't be so short-sighted. I think it's important to, to live life in each moment that's beautiful, present in each moment. But I also pray, Lord, that we would have the vantage point of eternity, of knowing that you would come at any moment, absolutely. But there's a much greater story of you redeeming all things. And we can trust you with how that plays out. And we can obey you day by day by day. We can be faithful to you day by day by day as we anticipate your return. So we do pray, come Lord Jesus. We love you, we need you. We wanna see your king, you wanna see your kingdom fully realized on the earth as it is in heaven. And it gives me great joy and a lot of security knowing that you said you're coming again and you will make all things new. So I love you, bless us, teach us, guide us. Let us be humble people who hold these things with open hands but who agree on the beautiful reality that you're coming again. I love you, Jesus. Amen. Friends, know that you're loved. Grace and peace to you. Um, Herrick will be up next week with a really encouraging message. I can't encourage you enough to check it out. We love you. We'll see you next time. 